Well, good morning. We hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Uh, we've been having some technical issues trying to get this to live stream, but I think, I think you're able to hear it and to join us in our worship. I know that uh, it's, it's been uh, in, um, a very hectic week for, for most people between uh, the virus going around, um, issues just sort of uh, popping up because of, of the virus, uh, with it being uh, also the holiday season. But hopefully as we come together, we'll settle our hearts, look at God's word and have the Holy Spirit uh, minister to us. And so um, though I would love to sing, um, I will spare you um, the agony of hear hearing do a solo a cappella. But um, yeah. So let's uh, open our time with a word of prayer and we can get into things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to your word. And though we are spread out across the state right now, live streaming, we can still have our hearts knitted together because of the church family that we have. We have the opportunity to open your word together and to celebrate this time of season this time in which we can remember the birth of your son. For Father, he has changed human history. He has come to this earth to die upon the cross. He is our Savior, and he is one who will return again. And so we thank you that through your spirit that we can worship him, put God's glory on display through our lives, be able to share the gospel with those who do not know you, or they can hear the gospel message through many of the songs that are played. And so use this time, Father, to bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting because uh, I was thinking about a passage to uh, begin our time. And I want you to open your Bible. And so this morning, we're going to uh, need for you to open your Bible. But I want to put our thoughts upon one of the Psalms to sort of open up, uh, go back into prayer, and then uh, get into uh, the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And so open your Bible to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is one of my favorite psalms. It was a psalm that was written by David. And it begins by blessing the Lord, and it's a very individual psalm, which leads to a very corporate perspective, and which sort of ends up, in the heavenlies with the angels and the Lord uh, blessing him and all that he has done. And it ends uh, with by how it begins, by bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So let's look at Psalm 103, follow as I read out loud, beginning at verse 1. Here we get to see God's attributes, his actions, what he has done throughout this great psalm. Because God's glory is on display in our lives. David writes this in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is, is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. 
The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward the those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our, our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. It is, um, its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word. Obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, as we look through this hymn of David, a hymn of worship that is a very positive uh, psalm to where it focuses all on you and what you have done. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing song that looks at your attributes on how glorious you are on how you have worked in the lives of your people. For where would we be if you have not forgiven us of our sins? That you have taken all those things away. And when you see us, Father, you see the righteousness of Christ that has been given over to us. And it's amazing, Father, how we were so lost in our sins. But you have come into our life to where we, we have seen the helplessness in where we were. And we have repented and turned to you. For it is so easy to think that we could work our way to do something and to merit something, to gain into your, into your presence. But there is nothing that we could have done except you have sent your Son. We thank you, Father, that you are redeeming our lives every day, for every day is a brand new start. Every day in, uh, we have the opportunity to serve you. We look at how you provide for all aspects of our, of our life, for times in which we feel uh, pounded down or run down. You are there to renew our strength. So, Father, we thank you that our lives 
is a way in which we sacrifice ourselves to you so that our decisions, our reactions can bring your name glory into a lost world. For you are a God who is ever compassionate towards us. You are gracious. You're slow to anger. And you're abounding that loving kindness. For Father, if we try to please you just on our own merit, we would deserve your wrath. But you are there, and you are patient, and we are different from the way that we were today, in which we were yesterday, and in the previous day, and even where we were last year and the previous year. For your Spirit is at work in us, making us more like your Son. And so, Father, even though this day that we are separated through distance because of the virus situation, we can still come together and to put our thoughts upon you corporately. That we have that opportunity to pray for one another. For we think of a pastor and his family um, and uh, Noel and others who uh, I may not know about who have recently uh, been tested positive for the virus. That you can just be with them during this time. For we yearn for a time in which uh, we can just meet together under normal conditions. But you have given us this time for a reason. For your people to have a positive perspective as the world has a negative downtrodden perspective. That we can share how sovereign you are and that no matter what takes place, everything is in control by you. And we can share on how no matter what the situation may be, even if there's another pandemic that could ever happen, that your people are not fearful, that we don't have to cower, but yet we have our faith and trust in you. And so, Father, our days are short, but yet every day our lives can affect eternity. For as we live for you, as we speak for you, our lives can touch those who are lost, and when we share the gospel, their lives will be affected by it. So thank you, Father, that we can bless you at all times, that we have the opportunity to praise you this morning and every day. And so thank you, Father, for us getting together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity to celebrate Christmas this time of year, and so I was pondering what to look at, what to talk about. Though I want to talk about the life of Joseph, I kept coming back to I needed to do a Christmas message. And so that's what we're going to look this morning for. We have this Sunday and the next Sunday to celebrate Christmas, and this begins to be a reminder to me of how this season is special. And so we're going to be looking at, this morning, Matthew chapter 1. And so if you have your Bible, turn, uh, turn there uh, for me, or with me, as we begin to look at on why we celebrate Christmas. And there are a number of different reasons that we're going to be pulling out of Matthew chapter 1. But as we begin to uh, turn there, I want you to think about how birthdays are a big deal for many people. Within families, if you have like a firstborn, 
uh, first child and first child birthdays, they're special. Then you have more children and then they too become special. If you become a grandparent, your first uh, grandchild becomes special. So for families, birthdays can be a big deal. Also, even in countries, there are people of influence within uh, the history of that country or influential people that have shaped where that country is today. And so many of these countries give them their own holiday for us to remember them and their accomplishments. And so we have Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday, Martin Luther King Day are ones that come to mind. They're special because they played a pivotal, a pivotal part in our history. But birthdays can come and go. Sometimes we celebrate a, a person's birthday, but then it's then replaced by another person's birthday who's more recent, and we remember that, and the other uh, person's birthday seem, may seem to fade away. And so there is one person who was born 2,000 years ago who has basically shaped all of human history. And so that is the birth of Jesus. It is through his birth, his life that he led in his death, it changed the world. So much so that he split time in half. That if you think about it, before his birth, when we look at history, we call it B.C. or before Christ. So if you look at the life of David, he lived about a thousand B.C. or a thousand years before the birth of Christ. If you look at what took place after the birth of Christ, we, we call that A.D. or Adno Domini, or the year of our Lord. So currently, this is 2020, it's been 2,020 years since the birth of our Lord. And so, our, so Jesus, when he was born, changed time. No other person within human history has ever done that. It wasn't a political leader, it wasn't Muhammad, it wasn't Buddha, had any kind of effect, but Jesus did. He has changed history so much that we even categorize time according to his birth. And so we begin to see his birth and we begin to find that there are at least three reasons why we celebrate Christmas. And so it is a time for God's people to be thrilled with meeting together for Christmas. But it's interesting because for our society, it seems like the birth of Jesus gets pushed off and pushed off all the more. If someone came from Mars and they were to come down and to sort of view everything going on and they would see all of the decorations and hear all the Christmas music and see all the brouhaha that is taking place they would think that it is a celebration of just a just a holiday in which family members get together there's gift giving it's a time of great celebration and for this celebration, it seems to start earlier every year. For even uh, this past October, when we went to the store, if you got out, um, they began to decorate for Christmas. And from that point on, it just seems like there's a constant stream of radio stations playing Christmas songs uh, 24, 
hours a day, seven days a week, and it just continues. There's even uh, cable TV stations that play nonstop Christmas mu uh, movies to where you can get your fill. When you listen to those songs on the radio, it's interesting because if you listen to them early on in the Christmas season, um, you hear songs like It's Cold Outside, uh, Jingle Bell Rock, It's a Holly Jolly Christmas, you know, Sleigh Bells, and all those things. But to find the religious songs, they're hard to find. It's only until now you begin to hear, you know, the first Noel or Silent Night, or any other of the Christmas songs that actually talks about Jesus. And so Christmas is a time in which our culture celebrates um, holiday, but there's very little celebration of the sun. You can even go to uh, countries like China, to where they have a communist government, and go there and sort of look around, and you'd say, it looks just like America. They celebrate Christmas. You see Christmas trees, their families get together, there are parties going on, usually if there wasn't a virus. Um, and there's no Jesus, though. It's just a celebration. You can go to Muslim countries like the uh, Emirates, to where they boast to have the most expensive Christmas tree, over $11 million. And it's a strictly a Muslim country to where it is outlawed to preach Jesus, but yet they celebrate Christmas. It seems like in um, just about every country around the world, Christmas is divorced from the Savior. It's just a celebration to where they get together and Jesus is pushed further and further in the corner. But for God's people, we can be reminded that we celebrate Christmas for a whole different reasons. Though it's nice getting together with family, usually, and it's nice gift giving, even though we can overspend, and it's nice just having parties, because we all like to have a good time, but yet there's a reason for that. There is a reason for the season, and that's found in Christ. And so we come to look at the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, to find at least three reasons on why we celebrate Christmas and be reminded of that. It's more than family. It's more than parties. It's more than gift giving. It's found in a person. And so this morning, with the time that we have, uh, we're going to be looking at that. And so there are three reasons. And the first reason I want you to write down, because you're taking notes, I'm sure, is that Jesus has the proper lineage. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus has the proper lineage to be Messiah. And so there are three, uh, there are three areas that we find within this one passage that underscores that aspect, that it, he has his proper lineage. And first of all, we find in the opening statement that Jesus is from the proper race. And so look at, uh, look at uh, verse 1, because there we begin to see a genealogy, a list of names. Um, there's a summary statement that's found in verse 1, and then the list of names begins in verse 2, and goes all the way down to the end of 17. And so if you're like myself, uh, reading through names, whether it's here or numbers in the book of Numbers or wherever there's a list of genealogies, 
when I first became a believer, I would get bored very quickly and sort of jump to find the good stuff after the list of names. Not realizing that though I'm looking for the gold nuggets within or outside of the genealogies, there are gold nuggets laying on the top of the ground within the list of names, and that's what we have here. There's some gold nuggets that, that just stand out when you begin to look at the genealogy. And right at the beginning, we see that Jesus is from the proper race. Look at verse 1. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ. Messiah there is the Hebrew, and Christ is the Greek. Uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As we shall see, there are a reason why Matthew pulls this out is he defines Jesus in his lineage. It goes through David, which uh, is his royal lineage, and then it goes through, also goes through Abraham, which is his racial lineage. And for the Jews, a genealogy was very, very important. For us, we just like to keep track of our family history and our family tree. But for the Jews, it had a, a lot greater implication at this time. And there are four reasons why a genealogy for the Jews were important. Because it was so important that um, we can see that uh, Jesus can trace his lineage all the way back to Adam. But we'll see that in, in a moment. And so the first reason why genealogies were important to the Jewish people is because an ancestry determines one's claim on the land. God promised Israel the land. And the land was going to be divided up into 12 sections corresponding to the 12 tribes. And so you could own land if you were a member of a certain tribe. And so um, it was important for you to trace your genealogy for uh, your future generations so they can own land. And so you had to keep track of your family tree in the past. Second reason is um, ancestry determined claims for the right of inheritance. To receive land or servants or crops, one had to verify as one bloodline to see that if they had a claim of part of any kind of inheritance. And so you had to know your family tree. Third reason why um, genealogies were important is that ancestry established the basis for taxation. At the time, we even see this at the time in which Jesus was about to be born, there was going to be a tax in Luke chapter 2. And so Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem to register so that they could be taxed. And so uh, you had to know your family tree so you can go back to uh, the uh, place of your forefathers for the basis of taxation. Nobody likes taxes, but that's what was done. And then the last reason why we find is that the ancestry determined uh, claim to the priesthood and to royalty. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. To be a, um, a part of the leadership, you had to be from the line of David. And so if you could not prove your lineage, you were out of luck. We even find that in Ezra chapter 2, there were a group of men that were excluded from the priesthood because they could not verify their lineage. And so it was very important to, to the Jews to be able to prove their genealogy. 
And so here we have a record of Jesus' family tree, his genealogy, his lineage. It's interesting to also footnote that from this point, from Jesus, basically Jesus on, um, about 70 AD, where Jerusalem was destroyed, Rome came in under General Titus and just flattened everything uh, to where the Jews uh, basically lost their history. They lost their records. They lost everything to even this day, they cannot trace accurately their lineage back. Some may know, if you had a name Cohen, that you may be related to the priesthood, but outside of that, they cannot tell you what tribe that they are from. And so even during the Babylon captivity, they kept detailed records of their family tree, because so when God promised them that they would go back, they would be all set to go back to the right portion, those in leadership, those in the priesthood, and be all, uh, be all set. And so here we have Jesus' family tree, his genealogy, his lineage. And it's interesting because this is not the only place where we have it. I want you to keep your finger here. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 3. Because there we have another genealogy. So uh, our Lord had two genealogies that were listed. One in the book, Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, and the other one is found in Luke chapter 3. And it's interesting because here we have, for the most part, the Lord's family tree, his genealogy. Uh, Matthew's list, if you um, flip to uh, the book of Matthew, it starts with Abraham and it ends with Jesus, down in, um, down in verse 17. Flip over to Luke chapter 3. There we have a, in reverse order, a family tree, which it actually begins down in verse 38 with Adam. So it ends with Adam, but it begins in verse 23 with Jesus. But we have a reverse order. Begins with Jesus, ends with Adam, but it lists for the most, most part his family tree. And so when you begin to compare this list here in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, you find out for the most part the lists are identical from, or it is identical, from Abraham to David. But when you get to David and right after, you begin to get a listing of different names. Interesting. Some people look um, at that and say, see, the Bible has errors. Well, there's reason for that, as we're going to see in a moment. There's a reason for it. Because if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6, you have Matthew tracing Jesus' family heritage back to David through the line of Solomon. But when you look at Luke's um, history from David on in verse 31 of Luke chapter 3, it does not go through Solomon. It goes through the line of Nathan, David's other son. Hmm, why is that? I think we'll have an answer in a moment. And so um, Nathan was Bathsheba's son, and Solomon was uh, Bathsheba's third son, and Solomon was Bathsheba's uh, first son. 
It's very significant on why that takes place. Now, when you look at Matthew's listing, Matthew is broken down into 42 names. It has three listings of 14 names. And so, verse 17 talks about there's 14 uh, generations, there's 14 generations, there's 14 generations. And so that's how uh, Matthew breaks down the family tree. When you look at Luke chapter 3, there's a whole lot more than 42 names. There's 77 names that are listed. There's, um, a, there's 11 lists of 7 names. And so it basically says that we don't have a complete listing here, but we generally have, probably for a memorization purpose, a listing in which you can still trace Jesus' family tree. Because if you look at Luke 23, it talks about the son of uh, Heli. Uh, that could be, uh, it's probably a gap, because when you compare... Um, over in Matthew, it does not have the same corresponding name. And so, uh, genealogy is very important. There are gold nuggets throughout this, and, uh, some of which we will look at today. But I want you to turn back to Matthew. We're, we're, we're going to sort of uh, look at what Matthew is going to be saying about his lineage. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, starts his lineage. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And so Jesus has the proper lineage because he's Jewish. And to be uh, Jewish um, um, and in the bloodline, you had to go back to Abraham. And Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. God chose Abraham to be the father of a nation. And he makes a covenant with him. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12, if you would, where we get to see this promise that he makes. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And when we get to the life of Joseph, we're, we're, we're going to be coming back to the Abrahamic Covenant. But this is the promise that he makes with, with uh, Abram here, who God will change his name to Abraham. Look at the first three verses. We find that now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God makes a promise to Abraham. And as the Abrahamic covenant gets um, discussed here and then uh, gets to get more detail to it in the following chapters where God talks to him more about it, it focuses on three areas, a land, a seed, and a blessing. God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you land. Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed or descendants, and I'm going to give you a blessing. You will be a blessing. I will bless you. Then your land will overflow with milk and honey, and um, as, um, as Moses had told them. And so uh, land and seed and blessing. 
And so the Messiah is part of this seed. Messiah is the promised seed who is in line with Abraham. And it just didn't stop there that Jesus was in the line of, of Abraham. Because the, the, secondly, Messiah had to have, be of the proper tribe. And so first of all, Jesus had the proper lineage going back to Abraham. But secondly, Jesus has the proper tribal lineage. He had the proper tribe. Look what it says in the next part of verse 2. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of what? Judah and his brothers. Messiah had to be from the tribe of Judah. And so there were 12 tribes in which the Jews divided the land, and Messiah could not just come from any tribe. It had, like, like the tribe of Dan or Gad. Or Asher. It had to be from the tribe of Judah. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 49. When we come back to the life of Joseph, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 49 in a lot more detail. Here we have the blessings for the 12 sons. But here we have the blessing towards the line of Judah. Genesis chapter 49 Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion or lioness that we find here, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of people. There we have a blessing towards Judah, but also to his seed, or to his descendants. And so Messiah had to come from the line of Judah. And he is the Lion of Judah. And so we begin to see that Jesus is from the proper tribe. Don't turn there, but in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, John is weeping because there is no one who is worthy to open the scrolls. And the elders are, are there and they tell him, stop weeping, for there is one worthy to open the scroll. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has come so as to open the book and its seven seals. There we have Jesus with the title of from the tribe of Judah. And he's from the root of David. And so it's an additional requirement. Not only was Jesus had the proper race, not only uh, did he... Was he, did he have the proper tribe? But thirdly, Jesus had the proper royal lineage because he is from the root of David. Go back to Matthew chapter 1, if you would. We have a listing of names, which I'm not going to bore you because you'll go to sleep and there's no fun falling asleep in front of your computer. But when you begin to look at verse 6, we find, uh, we find this. Jesse, the father of David, the king. So within our Lord's genealogy, 
There are some names that stand out. Abraham, David, Judah. And so he had the proper line. Look over, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We find a very important passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. There we have our Lord making a covenant with David. It's actually an uh, extension of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's the Davidic covenant, if you would, where God makes and clarifies promises to David and his reign and future reign. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, go back to verse 8, if you would, <clears throat> says this, Now therefore, thus you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from a pastor and from following sheep to be ruler over my people. So it's clearly King David. You were a shepherd, now you're king. Verse 9, I have been with you. Wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, I will make your name great, like the names of great men who are on the earth. So this promise is made directly to David, but it goes beyond David the king who lived at that time. Look at verse 12, because there's a future reign of a future seed of David. Uh, in verse 12, when your days are complete, so it's pretty much obvious that it's not David himself. You will lie down with your fathers. But I will raise up your seed. New American has this um, descendant, and um, that's how it, it translated. But literally there, it's seed. That's very important. When we get back to the... Uh, life of Joseph, we're going to be looking at that. But I'm going to raise up your seed. Your, there's going to be one in your bloodline, your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Emphasis added by me. Um, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed uh, from before you. Your house, your kingdom, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever, according to in accordance with all these words and all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So whoever was going to be king was going to have an everlasting kingdom. He was going to rule, and his rule will be without end. And so three times is this aspect that David, there will be one. He is going to be the promised one. I will set him up, and his reign will be forever. And so Jesus had authority through his lineage back to David to rule. Look on over in uh, uh, Romans chapter 15, if you would, in verse 12. Romans chapter 15, in verse 12, Paul is 
fairly much underscoring the same thing, but looking at it through the lens of the Gentiles uh, by quoting Isaiah. And he says in verse 2 of Romans 15, Again, Isaiah says, There shall come forth the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse, as we just saw, was David's father. So from Jesse's line, he who um, arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. God promised to Abraham that he will bless his people, but they shall be a blessing to the nations. And so this also complements the covenant that not only made with David, but also with Abraham to be a blessing. And there is going to be one through the line of Jesse, uh, um, which, is through David, uh, which, which comes from David, who will have a rule over the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will have a hope. They won't be lost, but they will see blessings from, from God through the one from the lineage of David. And so Jesus was his promised one, this promised seed. And so no matter how you begin to look at Jesus' lineage, whether through the race, whether through the tribe, or whether through his royal line, he has the right to rule. Now, remember I said that there was a difference between Matthew's listing and, and Dr. Luke's listing? I want you to sort of um, go back to Matthew chapter 1 and also flip back to Luke chapter 3. And keep your finger in both because we're going to do some flipping. In both of these places, we get to see Jesus' line. Matthew looks at, at Jesus' line through his earthly father, Joseph. But Dr. Luke gives us a lineage that is different because he is going, um, going to be giving us an explanation through his lineage, through his mother, going back to David. And so Matthew gives his, his, um, um, his father's listing, and, his, uh, and Luke is going to give his maternal listing, or through his mother's line. This is very important. Because there is, a there is a reason why, from David on, one is through Solomon and one is through Nathan. But no matter through his mother or through his father, Jesus has right to rule. But there is a, there's a division. There is a branch. And so we celebrate Christmas because Jesus has the right to rule. He is king. He is the king who's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. He reigns now, but he will have a physical kingdom in the future. So this is at the heart of Jesus' entire ministry, and it begins by each author here telling us of Jesus' birth and his right to rule, and which, in, which underscores the fact that we have the right to follow him because he is king. Now let me add just one more thing as a footnote before we sort of move forward with, with that one thought. 
It's interesting because when you look at these two genealogies, which essentially were public record, anyone could, could go back, go to Jerusalem, and find out one's family tree. But throughout Jesus' ministry, his critics attacked him on just about every front except for his right to rule. They attacked him for having no formal education, no social standing. He just came from uh, plain folk. He had a, a, a carp carpenter for a father. He, come from, he comes from a backwoods town of Bethlehem. He was really a nobody from nowhere. And so they kept attacking him and attacking him, but his critics never attacked his right to rule. And so it is clear from, from the record, they knew his history because that would have come up <laughs> in some form or another, but it never did. But it leads us to the second reason why we celebrate Christmas on why there is a break within, at, at the point of David. The second reason uh, why we celebrate Christmas is not only Jesus' lineage, but it, Jesus is free from the curse of sin. Jesus is free from the curse of sin. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Christ was as follows. So the genealogy is there. Now it gives us a story. When his mother Mary has been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, when they were married, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That is significant. That is extremely important. This verse tells us about the virgin birth of Christ. And the virgin birth of Christ is everything. You cannot throw out Christ's virgin birth and still believe in the Jesus of the Bible. You can't, and I'll explain in a moment. The reason why we celebrate Christmas is because of the virgin birth. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 3. I hate to say it, we're going to look at this again when we get to the life of Joseph. But in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, we have the first glimpse of the gospel. Here we have the fall has just taken place. The first couple fell, and now um, curses are getting to be uh, disclosed, but there's a promise given to the curse of the serpent. Here we have in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. There's an aspect of descendants, the seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's a promise to deal here with Adam's sin. And we find in the last part of the verse that to deal with Adam's sin, there needed to be a male child born from her seed. And pronouns are everything. It tells us Messiah, or this one who was going to deal with Adam's sin, was going to be a male child. Pronouns are everything. And so a male child will be born from the seed of a woman and will set right what Adam had set wrong. And to do so, he will go to the cross 
and have his heel bruised. And so, and so there is a problem. There's the promise, but there is a problem. The problem is that everyone born from, um, from Adam on is born with original sin. Because Adam is our federal head, sin is passed down to everyone. Passed down through Adam to everyone who has ever lived. You know Romans 3.23 from your gospel toolkit. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person has sinned who has ever lived. If you've lived, you had sin. And so we don't become a sinner when we commit our first sin. We are a sinner because we do sin. But we are a sinner because we are conceived in sin because of Adam. But the question arises, how can you have a male child born of a woman free us from sin? If he's going to inherit original sin that is passed down from Adam himself. The answer is, you can't. Someone put it this way. So if we're going to have a savior born of a woman, but this savior cannot be born of a man. Because if he is, he inherits original sin. And if he inherits original sin, he has no original righteousness of his own to be imputed or to pass on to anyone else. So they can be justified by faith. So the savior cannot be born of a man. We begin to look at, um, at a verse. We get to see that she was a virgin who was, be found, who was found with child by the Holy Spirit. That how. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5 as we sort of move along. Romans chapter 5 in verse 12 Paul begins to sort of look at this aspect to where Adam is our federal head, but for those who, comes to, who come to Christ, Christ now becomes our head. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, we find, we find this. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Keep that in mind. All sinned. There are no exclusions. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin not was imputed or passed on when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Jesus did not have an earthly father. He did not have original sin. So when he was beaten to the father, he never sinned. He fulfilled the law. His righteousness then could be passed on to someone else. And it was at the cross because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and did not have original sin. So when you begin to look at the virgin birth, the virgin birth is everything. It's significant. Not only was it prophesied back in the Old Testament, but we, we see here it's essential for salvation. 
because we were in sin, because we are sinners, but we are conceived in sin from Adam. Through Adam, all have sinned. You can't get around that. You cannot deny the virgin birth, because if you do, you're believing in another Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. So we celebrate the birth of Christ, and his birth was completely different than every other birth, because he was born of a virgin, and he frees us from the curse of sin. He's more than just a, a good teacher. He is more than just a special man. He was more uh, than just someone who lived an extraordinary life. Because he would still have no merit on his own because of the original sin. So he could not impute that, um, his righteousness to anyone else because he would just be an ordinary sinner like everyone else. And so he had to be born of a virgin. Now I have to do a footnote because I was brought up in a Roman Catholic church. And very quickly you begin to find out, I got no problem with a virgin birth, but I do have a problem in the Immaculate Conception. The Bible talks a lot about the virgin birth, but it says nothing about Mary's Immaculate Conception. And when you begin to look at things, you begin to sort of find out that the Bible is very, very clear. And the Roman Catholic doctrine on Mary's Immaculate, Immaculate Conception cannot be found. Because Roman Catholicism says that Mary was chosen to give birth to Jesus because she was without sin. Not only that, they go on to say that Mary was born sinless, she lived sinless, and she died sinless even though she never knew a man and stayed a virgin her entire life. Even though there are a number of verses that says, like in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, that Jesus had siblings. But they have weird explanations for that, but yeah. And so Mary then becomes, as she was sinless, she becomes the co-mediatrix of Christ because she is then the sinless one where we now can worship not only Jesus, but we can worship her. That's heresy. Virgin birth, yes. Heresy, she was still a sinner. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. It doesn't say footnote except for Mary because she, she was sinless. She, that, no. No to immaculate conception. Yes to virgin birth. And so we get to see here that Jesus' birth was essential because she, uh, he was born of a virgin. Now you may be sitting uh, home in your jammies uh, watching this right now and say, wait, there's, there's an issue here because Joseph is being told that he was Jesus' father. But if he had no male father, um, he's not from Joseph's bloodline. So how could he have the right to rule through Joseph's bloodline? That could be a good question. But it's interesting, because Joseph was not from 
It was not in Jesus' bloodline. Because look at verse um, 16. We have this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, whom is called Messiah. So what's going on? Matthew still wants us to show us that Jesus had a legal right to rule. That's the whole purpose of giving the genealogy. But what's, what's up? What's up is that Joseph adopted Jesus. And you begin to understand the biblical uh, theology behind adoption. It's one that has full rights and privilege as though as they were a natural child. So that's why Joseph is from the father of, um, Joseph is the father of Jesus. Jesus has the right to the throne because he's directly related to uh, Joseph because of his adoption. And it makes him uh, in the lineage of David. So whether or not through the lineage of Mary or through the lineage of uh, of of Joseph, he is related. I want you to um, look at this other aspect. Well, all right, but that still doesn't answer the question, why the break in the family tree? That Matthew has a, a, a break in the line from, from David on, and um, um, why is that? Glad you asked that question, because I know you're, you're not sleeping. If you go to Luke chapter 3, Matthew gives us, once again, the lineage from David to Solomon, uh, Bathsheba's first son, and then it gives Luke's account through Nathan. And so, in verse 31 of, of Matthew, we see Solomon. In Luke chapter 3, uh, we also find uh, Nathan being brought up. Why is that important? It's extremely important. You don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 22, in verses 24 through 30, we find a description of the last king of the southern kingdom, uh, Jehoiachin, if I can say it. He was the last king, and within those verses we find a curse. Give it to him, because he was evil. And he was going to be the last king before Babylon came and took everyone into captivity. And Jeremiah curses him and his seed or his line that no son will ever sit on the throne of Israel again. So through the line of Solomon, ending up with, the, with Jehoiachin, no one would sit on the throne. That's through the line of Joseph. He was not a bloodline of, Je of, of Jesus. So that bloodline to the throne essentially ended. But here through Nathan in Luke chapter 3, we find that Jesus had full authority to, to the throne because it is through, the bloodline goes through Nathan to David. That's why. Boy, the Bible makes complete sense when you stop and to sort of ponder why there are differences. And so no matter if you look through Mary's line or if you look through Joseph's line, he had right to rule. He had the proper lineage and he frees us from the curse of sin because he was born of a virgin. But yet there's a third reason why we celebrate Christmas that we can make from this passage. 
Thirdly, we find that Jesus is the promised Savior. We celebrate this time because he was the promised one who would come and to save his people from their sin. Look verse 19. It says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. That's a very nice way of not bringing shame to her family for being with child and then getting her stoned for it. He did it secretly. But, in verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You will bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so we celebrate Jesus' birthday because he is from the proper line, because, um, because he has the right to rule, but also he is the promised one who came to die on the cross. Because we're all dead in our sin. We're all condemned. From the, from the first sin or even being conceived with sin, we are without, without hope. And there's no way that we could do anything to appease God. And God will one day judge every person to say, why should I let you in my heaven? And we will say, I've done many good things. I've given to you. I've served you. And he will say... Go from me, I never knew you. Why? Because we have not seen our sin, seen our helplessness, and seen that there was one who died in our place, who took the wrath that was destined for us. I could not change my standing before God because my best ability is as filthy rags. But Jesus was the promised one who was born of a virgin, sent down to live a perfect life, and to have his perfect life, his perfect righteousness be given over or imputed to our account. And then our sin, or my sin, was placed upon him. And God poured out the wrath that was destined for me upon him, and he paid the penalty that I could never pay. He is the promised Savior. And he is there for all those who seize their helplessness, repent of their sin, come to him in faith and trust in Christ, and he too will grant them eternal life. He was the promised one. And that invitation is there. I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 5 in a few moments that we have left. Romans chapter 5. We have a great section of, of the book of Romans that I, that I just want to pull out a, a couple things. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. We find this. For while we were still helpless, and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will probably die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. And then in verse 8, but God. 
demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for or on behalf of us. Much more than now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Four things that Paul brings out here in which we were. Back in verse 6, we were helpless. We lacked the strength. We were ungodly. We lacked the merit. We were sinners. We lacked the righteousness. And then in verse 10, we, we were enemies. We, did, we had no peace with God. But we find here, we have peace. We were reconciled. We have a peace treaty now with God that's found in the death of his son. And we will be saved because he was risen again from the dead and through his life brings about salvation. And God demonstrated his own love towards us that he poured his wrath on his son that was destined for me. And then in verse 9, we have that propitiation, that complete satisfaction of God's wrath. We shall be saved from the wrath of God because it's already been paid for. And so we celebrate Christmas because Jesus is the promised one who saves all who turns to him. And so there is a, a child that was born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, this is the one promised from long ago who they've been waiting for. The one who lived a sinless life. The one who will have a vicarious atoning death. Who will fully satisfy God's wrath. And who will die for the sins of his people. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 as we sort of close. I want you to sort of look at this. Because Joseph takes this to heart in verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated mean God with us. While he was on earth, he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. He was God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. And then in verse 25, but kept her a virgin until. There's no immaculate conception there because until means there, there was an end of her being a virgin. But kept her a virgin until she gave birth to his son and he called his name Jesus. And so we celebrate Christmas because he is the one from Adam's offspring, from the line of Judah, Judah, from the seed of David, the one who is free from the curse, the one who comes to die for his people and free us from the curse because our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness was given over or imputed to us. He is the promised one of God who split time before Christ and after Christ, 
The um, Old Testament saints got saved the same way. They looked forward to the promised one. Since his birth and death, we look back to the promised one. The salvation was still the same. To believe in him, and it would be reckoned to one as righteousness. And so that's why we celebrate Christmas. You cannot dive, uh, divorce the man from the celebration. Because if you do, you get the jingle bells and the rocking around the Christmas tree and baby it's way cold outside and the Santas and the babies and whatever else going on. Those are nice, but it's not the meaning of Christmas. It's found in the one who was worthy, that God was pleased, and who died for us. Let's pray. Father, so much more could be said. And since I didn't have a watch, so much more probably was said. But when we think about this time, it should put a joy in our hearts that the message of salvation is at the center point of why we celebrate. is more than the trees with the lights and the glitter and the presents and the parties and the celebration. It's more than just all of that. We celebrate you fulfilling your promises in history, in time, by humbling yourself, by veiling your divine attributes and living among sinful men on how you would fulfill the law, but yet to die at the hands of your own creation to where you could have called down 10,000 angels and just wiped every uh, buddy out, but you chose not to because you died in our place as our substitution to die for all those who would turn to you. Father, there are many who are weighed down with their sin, many who are weighed down in the confusion of life of, of why. Why don't I feel the joy of Christmas? Is because they've divorced the man from the holiday. Because when you bring back the man, the God-man to the holiday, we can celebrate that he had the right to rule because he is from the line of Abraham, he is from the line of Judah. He is from the line of David. And because of that, he rules. Let him rule in our heart because we have seen our sin. We've seen our helplessness. And we turn to him as our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we may see you next Sunday. Thank you. Amen and amen. You are dismissed. No service next week? Oh, never mind. There's no service next week. What does that mean? I'm preaching again?